Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello. March is Women's History Month, and in honor of that, we're focusing this episode on books about strong women. I know that's a topic near and dear to both of our hearts. Definitely. So, um, when I was preparing for um, trying to pick out books for this this episode, um, I th- was thinking back to a few years ago when I decided I was tired of reading books by white men about white men. And so I decided intentionally, following the f- in the footsteps of many other people, to s- purposefully seek out um, books either written by women or about great female characters. And some of the books that I've picked out for today um, really feature strong characters, and the books are all written by women. Um, So I'm excited to share with you several of them. Uh, These are all books that I just keep keep on recommending to everyone I see. Anyone who asks, I shove them in front of their faces. Um, And the first one that I thought I'd talk about is the Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. Um, sometimes I, as I as I said, sometimes I feel like a broken record. I just keep recommending this trilogy over and over and again. Um, but I don't really care because I think it's fantastic and I'm not alone in that sentiment. The first two books in the series won the Hugo Award for Science Fiction two years in a row. And the third will probably be nominated this year. It hasn't won because that series of awards hasn't come out yet. Um, but that I mentioned the two Hugo Awards, not just because, you know, awards are a thing, but because they're notable in the history of the award. Very few authors have won this award in two consecutive years, and no African-American author, never mind a woman, has ever done it before. Um, so when I picked up the fifth season, which is the first book in the series, it immediately captivated me with its inventive world building and unconventional storytelling. The exploration and development of the main character, Essen, is what kept me invested. But what perhaps is what makes this trilogy truly special and important is the way that Jemison explores oppression and exploitation in a fantasy world. It's a series unique to the genre, which makes it both an excellent gateway book for those who aren't dedicated fantasy or science fiction fans, and also something new and fresh for fantasy, fantasy veterans. The third book in the trilogy came out in the fall of 2017 and deftly weaves together the storylines to form a satisfying and cohesive end. So you said that was mostly science fiction, right? Well, it has won the Hugo. The series, the first two books have won the Hugo, which is an award for science fiction that's been won by Asimov and Octavia Butler and all those folks that are um, really considered to be science fiction. But it is definitely a fantasy world, and they aren't in space at all. Um, so it's it kind of bridges both genres. It's in between for sure. It's not just science science fiction. It's not hard science fiction. It's not all fantasy like medieval renaissance 
lute players. There's none of that. It's, <laughs> it, it's its own thing for sure. It's just interesting. Didn't Weren't you talking about um, how hard it is to find good science fiction by women? Definitely. Uh, it is a, a genre dominated by men and mostly white men, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But, um, you know, when you're looking for a different perspective or a new way to look at futurism, um, that's where these different perspectives are really valuable, I, I think. Right, yeah. No, I remember I recently reread Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, and it's a book that I always loved. It was one of my favorites, but rereading it recently, I was just kind of struck by how sexist some of the writing was. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that just sort of gets in your head without you realizing it. For sure. Because it's not, it's sexist, but it's not trying to make a statement about sexism. It's, right, exactly. It's just baked in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It did, you know, I, it just changed my whole view of that book. Just, and and it, the book itself doesn't have many women in it. So in a way that made it even more... <laughs> troubling you know the fact that when there were women they were just for um you know for their bodies or Mm -hmm. or something yeah they're just a plot device Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways right so yay um, yeah this is a great a great series because it just feels way more real in that sense where the the characters are very diverse and in, in a whole different way than, you know, it's not Earth. It's not humans, necessarily. They, they are a different, it's a totally different world. It's fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they're, they're real in the sense that, you know, you've got women, it passes the Bechtel test immediately. You know? Right. <laughs> that kind of thing where, um, you know, if you're paying attention to those sorts of things, you've got men, you've got women, they're all working together or against each other in, in various cir- circumstances, but it's it's definitely not just about a white dude. <laughs> <laughs> and for those l- listeners who might not know about the Bechtel test, it's um, a test that Alison Bechtel, the graphic novelist, came up with. Um, I think she came up with it for movies, didn't mm-hmm. she? Um, yeah. And there have to be, at some point in the movie, two women who are talking about something other than a man is that the yeah so it's i think it's even it goes a little bit further than that to say that the two female characters have to have names okay two named women characters have to be talking about something other than a man and it's shocking how many movies fail mm-hmm. the bechdel test it is once you're paying attention to it oh and i do want to say that i misspoke earlier when I mentioned Octavia Butler as a Hugo winner, I was thinking of Ursula Le Guin, so pardon me. So I wanted to start by talking about the first novel in the Mary Russell series by Laurie King, The Beekeeper's Apprentice, or On the Segregation of the Queen. This book was on my reading list for a long time. I think our former teen librarian, Kendall Haddix, hi Kendall, (laughs) 
first recommended it to me, and I'm so glad I finally got to this richly textured adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. The book opens in 1915, when the 15-year-old narrator Mary Russell is out walking across the Sussex Downs and stumbles onto the retired Sherlock Holmes watching bees. Russell, as Holmes calls her, is feisty, intellectual, and unabashedly feminist. She's also not afraid to contradict Sherlock Holmes. Naturally, he finds these qualities appealing, and soon Russell becomes his apprentice. It's a delightful relationship, full of witty arguments, but with a tender friendship at its core. The book traces Russell's training as they embark on a series of small mysteries and travel to Wales to find the kidnapped daughter of an American senator. For the rest of the book, they grapple with an anonymous opponent worthy of Moriarty. Because I do most of my reading before bed, I'm always worried that mysteries will keep me up at night. But The Beekeeper's Apprentice is so leisurely paced, the detectives actually take a holiday in the middle of the, mis- of the mystery. <laughs> in the middle of this kidnapping case, they go to uh, Palestine, I think, and Israel, which totally makes the book my kind of mystery. There is still suspense. The lives of Russell Holmes, Dr. Watson, and Mrs. Hudson are all threatened. But those of you who like your mysteries fast-paced and plot-oriented may want to look elsewhere. I also found this book's strong sense of place compelling, particularly the descriptions of the English countryside and Oxford, where Russell enrolls in college. The writing style is lyrical, with an old-fashioned, almost elegiac tone. The Holmes and Russell dine on tinned beans and porridge when they're out on cases. Mrs. Hudson does her best to keep up with Russell's growing girl appetite. During Russell's first visit, Mrs. Hudson appears, quote, with plate after platter of bread, cheeses, relishes, and cakes, and she even sneaks Russell meat pies at one point. Since tea is Mrs. Hudson's favorite meal to prepare, I went searching for a scone recipe to pair with this book. The Great British Bake Off Big Book of Baking has a very traditional scone recipe, plus all the breads, cakes, and pies you could possibly want. They're also mostly made with lots of butter and cream, so if you avoid dairy like me, I recommend a recipe that I found on the blog Minimalist Baker, Coconut Oil Blueberry Scones with Rosemary. I made them over the weekend, and they were easy and delicious, and I'll definitely be making them again. Sound amazing. (laughs) Blueberry and rosemary. I know. It's kind of mind-blowing, right? (laughs) Sounds great. um, I was worried that, that I wouldn't that the amount of rosemary would be overpowering, especially because I used dried rosemary instead of the, she called for fresh rosemary, but of course I didn't have that. Um, but it was, it was just perfect. It was like a little hint of rosemary and then the blueberry with it. So they were a little more savory, you know, mm. than sweet. Oh yeah, I bet you could put a nice lemon glaze on top of that too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, first time I like to like to keep it simple. <laughs> Follow sure, the sure, recipe. Sure. <laughs> K 
Carrie's scone recipe would go great with the next book that I'm going to talk about because it's another uh, British theme. Uh, it is the Invisible Library series by Genevieve Cogman. She's a Brit and it comes through a lot in the main character Irene Winters. This series is one that recommend that was recommended to me so many times before I picked it up that I kind of started reading it with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. But alas, a fantasy adventure series about a librarian spy is just too compelling for this librarian to Ooh. resist. <laughs> yes, you had me at librarian. Well, you had me at scone, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the first book is titled The Invisible Library, and there are four out so far with a fifth one planned. Um, I'm not sure that Genevieve ever wants to stop writing about Irene and her fantasy world, but... Um, that's at, as far as we've gotten in the book, um, in the series. So the first book uh, introduces our protagonist, the capable and confident librarian Irene, who is a field agent for the library, which is the library with a capital L. Uh, her job is to venture into different worlds and, depending on who you ask, rescue, salvage, or steal specific books and specific editions of books to bring them back to the library for safekeeping into perpetuity. Although each book is a relatively self-contained caper, there's a hefty amount of overarching story and world building that binds the series together as a whole. Uh, like I said, four out of the five planned books in the series are already out and they're great for when you need something a little bit lighter but still clever and interesting. Great. They, I'm definitely going to have to pick those up. <laughs> Librarian spies. Yeah, it's fun. Although I was thinking about it earlier, and it does, she kind of, like, the uh, themes of colonialism and patriarchy do kind of come into it, but she never really digs into that, the, mm -hmm. the whole idea of, like, we'll hold on to this and keep it safe for you kind of thing that was very rampant during colonialism as still mm, being right. a, a fight being fought ongoing um, by museums and libraries in the in the colonialist world um, so that's that's one sort of major criticism that I would have she never really deals with that um, but the the fantasy world that this is built around the library is its own contained world and the librarians are sent into other worlds like parallel dimension kind of things um, to get these books and those worlds are self-contained as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a little bit different, but um, there's fae and dragons and it's just, it's very fun, <laughs> I must say. Great, well, thanks for sharing. So I never would have thought to read True Grit until I saw the Coen Brothers movie. Have you seen that movie or? Yeah, I did. And I'm, I, the audiobook is one that I really want to listen to, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yes. Um, well, I, I will also talk about that, the audio version as well, because I read the book and then I later listened to it. Um, but anyway, their version of Maddie Ross got me curious enough to want to pick it up. Um, so Maddie Ross is from Dardanelle, Arkansas, and if you don't know the plot, it's probably best for me to give it in her own voice. So the book begins 
People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood, but it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Chaney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money, plus two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band. And so Maddie, along with U.S. US Marshal Rooster Cogburn and Texas Ranger LaBeef, which is spelled L-A-B-O-E-U-F, but is pronounced LaBeef, <laughs> embarks on a journey to find Tom Chaney. Suffice it to say, I would not be talking about this book on an episode about strong women if Maddie didn't more than hold her own with those two. It's Maddie's hilarious, totally deadpan narration that makes this book such a joy to read. As author Donna Tartt notes in her afterword, Quote, a great part of True Grit's charm is in Maddie's blasé view of frontier America. Shootings, stabbings, and public hangings are recounted frankly and flatly, and often with rather less warmth than the political and personal opinions upon which Maddie digresses. She quotes scripture, she explains and gives advice to the reader, her, obs her observations are often overlaid with a decorative glaze of Sunday school piety. And speaking of Tarte, I highly recommend the audiobook version that she reads. We have it as a book on CD and as a downloadable on RB Digital. On RB Digital. And Tarte captures Maddie's voice perfectly, and she ably narrates a wide range of mostly male voices. It, she was really good. I was a little skeptical because, you know, an author reading um, someone else's book, but... I thought she did a great job. Yeah, I, when I saw that, I think I saw it on, you know, some list of great audiobooks to listen to, and I found that we had it. It was like, Donna Tart, really? Mm -hmm. But, okay. That, yeah. Sure, let's give it a try. I look forward to it, because it's one of my Book Riot Read Harder challenges <laughs> that I'm going to do. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say I've ever, I don't know that I've actually ever read a Western. That was my first one. Um, I have tried to read uh, Lonesome Dove <laughs> because it's one of my husband's favorite books, but I, it, I didn't get very far. Um, sorry, Scott. <laughs> if you're it was worth a try. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. For, for a recipe to pair with it, um, Maddie and her crew mostly subsist on corn dodgers and salt pork during their journey. There's not a lot of culinary skills going on. Sounds a bit like the Broken Earth trilogy. It's an <laughs> apocalyptic series, so there's a lot of trail bread. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I did find a couple of corn dodger recipes online, and they actually look better than what she described. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, if you're out on the trail, your <laughs> your corn dodgers are going to be a little different than uh, what you would make in the comfort of your own kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so we'll link to those on our blog, but in honor of Rooster Cogburn, the mean drunken marshal with a soft spot for Maddie, I think the best thing to pair with this story is a glass of whiskey neat. I, yeah, from watching the movie, I, I can understand that. 
seems fitting. Yeah. So um, I have to say, as much as I love bourbon, got to rule that out here. A little too sweet. <laughs> it's a little too sweet um, for needs, this story. Needs to burn a bit going it down. Does. <laughs> yes. Um, I personally have to go with my father-in-law's, my late father-in-law's favorite, which is George Dickel. Um, it has just a hint of smoke and wood. It's still smooth, but it does have some bite to the finish. <laughs> So this next series that I'm going to recommend is by Nettia Korafor, and it's called the Akata Witch series. The first book is also called Akata Witch. And it's another series that I can't quit recommending to different folks that come across my path. Um, the two-book series follows Sunny, the main character, who is a 12-year-old girl whose family has returned to Nigeria after spending most of her life in America. She also happens to be albino which only makes life harder for her as she tries to, su- tries to survive the trials and tribulations of being a teenager. When we join her story, Sunny has just been initiated into the magical world of the leopard people, and we follow her and her cadre of three friends as they explore and use their powers. There's a lot that I love about these two books, and Sunny is definitely one of the main reasons. Uh, she's a fun hero with flaws and quirks and hidden talents, and it's just really entertaining to walk through her as she as she learns all these different things. Um, her group of friends is they're all very capable in their own ways, and they work together to learn and fight when the need arises. Okorafor is able to bring in a bunch of Nigerian folklore and mythology without too much info dumping. And I really loved learning about the culture in such a fun way. If you're a fan of Rick Riordan's books, I highly recommend you seek out Sunny and her crew. And even if you don't know who Rick Riordan is, um, but are looking for a fast-paced hero story with likable characters, here's a great one. And then, if you like Akata Witch and its sequel, Akata Warrior, check out Akorafor's, um, one of her other series. It is a trilogy called Binti. Whereas Essen is on an apocalypse diet for most of her books, and Irene eats almost nothing throughout her four-plus books, food plays a big role in Sunny's tale in Akata Witch. One of the first dishes Sunny talks about eating is jollof rice, which is a very popular and important dish all over West Africa and Nigeria in particular. It's a very spicy, tomatoey rice dish that can be prepared in a million different ways depending on who you are and who's cooking. I've never made the dish personally, but I found a recipe that looks pretty good on the magazine Savers website. We'll put a link to the article and the recipe on the Books and Bites, Books and Bites blog on JCPL's website. Saver also has a recipe for fried plantains, which is another dish that Sunny describes making and eating in the books. These two recipes would definitely help amplify the atmosphere of Akata Witch and Sunny's adventures in Nigeria. Yum, they both sound delicious. Yeah, very spicy, full of habaneros. So be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So the last book I wanted to talk about is one that 
Melissa has also read or listened to, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Lillian Boxfish, Boxfish Takes a Walk by Kathleen Rooney. And um, I just finished this about a week ago. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it today is both of my books that I talked about featured teenage heroines. And uh, Lillian Boxfish is 85 years old in this novel. Well, 84. Um, 84 or 85. (laughs) I think she's 85. (laughs) The majority of the book takes place in 1984. Um, So let me give a little bit of the plot background. as she, it's in New York, New York City on New Year's Eve, and Lillian, who is a retired advertising copywriter and poet, is embarking on a 10-mile walk around the city. Um, and of course, while she does that, she's also reminiscing about her life, and specifically about her um, life as an advertising woman in in America in the 1930s. She wrote for Macy's and she was based on a real woman partly inspired by the life of Margaret Fishback who was also a a poet and she was the highest paid advertising woman in America in the 1930s. So I think it would appeal to anyone who was interested in women's history. I also found it just charming. She's this very charming character. um, And she's not afraid, even at her age, to have new experiences. And this was a time when New York City, there was a lot of crime in it. And she's out on this 10 mile walk and meeting new people and arguing with the guys who are trying to mug her and <laughs> all kinds of great stuff. What did, what did you think of it? That was a really good it? scene. I like that scene a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, part of, well, the reason that I, I know about this book and actually listened to it was, I'm going to talk about the reading challenge again, but one of the challenges for Book Riot is to read a book about, with the main character, who is a woman who is over the age of 60. Mm-hmm. And like with women in science fiction, it is not that easy to find a book with a protagonist of that age. Um, so this was one that, that was talked about as a possibility, and it, it sounded great. Um, the audiobook was wonderful. Um, and it one of the things that I really loved about it is that, that rarity. Um, you know, I would love to listen or read more stories about women that are, you know, past their prime, quote unquote, um, because they have such a different perspective on things. You know, mm-hmm. there there are so many women in my life that you have so many stories. I would love to know what they are. And that's basically what this book is. She's She's thinking about all the different things that have happened to her over this very interesting life. Um, and they're not all happy. They're not all sunshine. But, right. um, you know, framing it in this walk around New York City, she's not just walking through present day. She's walking through the past. And, yeah, I'm looking. I listened to it maybe a month ago and looking back on it. it is, there's She's a powerful character for sure. And the, the audio, I, I would definitely recommend it. The narrator did a great job. Um, and at the end of the audiobook copy that we have. I think it's on Hoopla. 
Oh no, it's on it's on Overdrive. There is a Q and A with between the author and the narrator. Oh, that cool. was really cool. And is uh, in the audiobook, what did the narrator's voice sound like? Did she sound like an older woman? Uh-huh. Or yeah, she's not, but she did a okay. pretty good uh-huh. facsimile, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it was believable. Mm-hmm. Cool. She she was kind of had like a Catherine Hepburn vibe. Which worked really well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because she's just a very savvy woman. Mm-hmm. And hearing her talk about, you know, being being an ad woman in the, in the 30s, yeah, it worked really well. And you had a uh, yeah. So recipe? one of the one of the scenes in the book is on her walk. She stops in at a neighborhood bar and has a Negroni before heading on to her dinner reservation. And a Negroni also happens to be one of my favorite cocktails. Uh, I particularly love all the different adaptations that you can make on the classic drink because you still get something fantastic. Um, and it is a pretty good, I think it's a pretty good drink for Lillian. Strong, a little bitter, a little <laughs> mm-hmm. sweet. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot wrapped up in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so typically it's made with equal parts Campari, which is an Italian um, aperitivo that is re- very bitter and very bright red. Um, so it's made equal parts Campari, gin, and sweet vermouth. But there's a version that I really like made with rye whiskey, called, and it is called the Boulevardier. And I, it's one of my favorite drinks. Uh, the substitution results in a cocktail that is somewhere between a Manhattan and a Negroni that's both bittersweet, but also, um, you know, has that depth of flavor that you don't necessarily get with gin. Um, it's sort of a happy medium between the sweetness of a Manhattan and the, the bitter brightness of a Negroni. So I highly recommend you check it out. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions, so feel free to email us at podcast at justpublib.org. We record in the recording studio at the Jesmond County Public Library. You can find out more about the library, our recording studio, and the books we talked about in this episode on our website at justpublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website at doorforadesk.com.